Hey folks, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. So I just got back from a conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, and while I was in town, I do the things I normally do when I'm there. I climb Arthur's seat, eat haggis, pop down to the pub for a wee dram, and hey, thanks to Norman, by the way, for introducing me to Lechik. And I decided to meet up with an old colleague of mine, Rachel Hosker. Rachel's the deputy head of special collections and the archives manager at the University of Edinburgh Library. She works in a library that was founded in 1582. And for the past couple of years, she and I have been working as part of a team on a transatlantic legal history project. And maybe we'll talk about that in a future podcast. Now, on one of my last trips to Edinburgh, Rachel had arranged for my colleagues and I to see a George Washington letter in the library's collection. And since I was back in Edinburgh, and this time I was in George Washington's employ, I thought, well, why don't we talk about this letter on air? So in today's episode, Rachel and I talk about a letter that connects Washington to Adam Ferguson, one of the central figures of the Scottish Enlightenment. And Rachel also brought out a Washington book in the library's collection as well. And this volume, which is entitled Washington's Political Legacies, was published in the months just after his death. We'll post links to both the letter and the book on our webpage. And you'll also hear how Rachel's interest in archives began at a very early age and how she knew almost immediately that she wanted to work with rare materials and manuscripts. And for your researchers out there, you'll get a taste of the library's amazing collections, including the Lane Collection, which holds this Washington letter. Enjoy! One of the things I wanted to ask is, do you ever get tired of the view out here? No. Well, only when you can't see it when the rain comes mm. in and the clouds. But then that's like being in a weather station. You can, you can look um, and it's almost 360 view and see what's coming in terms of the weather. But it is nice being able to offer that for researchers as well, mm -hmm. that kind of environment where um, I've worked in archives where you're in the, the, the basement and there's no light and that to have that ability to have a nice environment to work exactly. in is, is great. Well, I, I think the first time I came up here, I was just amazed that, you know, you could see Arthur's seat out <laughs> the back <laughs> yeah. window. But then, I, so what is the area that's sort of, I mean, I guess that would, that would be the, the south? Pe it's the Pentland Hills, and you're looking towards the Scottish borders, mm. which is a, a mainly agricultural area of Scotland. And it was the area where, um, the when Scotland was an independent nation, there, there were a lot of sort of cross-border um, raiding mm. that went on, so... It, it was a bit of an area of no man's land, but it's very beautiful down there as well. well it's very green this time of year, too. I yeah. mean, it's always green, but particularly <laughs> here in the summertime. Yeah. Um, so your your official title is Deputy Head of the Center for Research Collections, is that correct? It's Deputy Head of Special Collections, Special Collections and Archives Manager for the University. So what what is it that you do here? <laughs> Good question. No. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I deputize for the head of special collections and our special collections cover archives, rare books, manuscripts, photographic collections, film collections, um, medal collections, you know, um, so it's it's those unique items that are part of the university's uh, knowledge base but also part of the, the university's um, uh, heritage collections, part of the university's corporate memory. So we've got that um, base of um, what did the university do mm -hmm. and how we, how we got to where we are now at the moment as well. And how old is the university itself? 1583. Oh. But we always say that the library came first because <laughs> in 1582, Clement Little um, gifted his library um, to the proposed town's college 
Um, uh, and so that, that was a, something that was there in place before teaching started in earnest in 1583. Wow. Gosh, that's amazing. And so how many, do you have, how many items are in the, the entirety of the collection? A whole bunch. Uh, yeah, be fair uh, to say. We, we, yeah, we, we, it depends on how you, ma you, you, you calculate that because mm -hmm. we don't um, look at just books or, or individual items mm -hmm. because you'd be, you'd be entering the millions. Right. So um, you would, oh, I should say thousands, you'd be entering the thousands, um, upon thousands. But you, we also, um, at the Centre for Research Collections, have a converged service. So we have mm. musical instruments, we have art collections, and we've got the di digital side of right. things as well. So um, we're one of the only places in the UK that offer that um, rounded view of cultural heritage mm -hmm. collections at, at an institution like this. And that's for the benefit of our researchers so that you know they can look at... Um, an artwork at the correspondence of the artist that they can look at um, a book about that in one single mm. place rather than having to go to several. So you try to be like, in, a, in a sense a one-stop shop and, and present a holistic yeah, research opportunity I, I, in some I, ways. Rather than a one-stop shop, I would say it, it's, it's a, a place where the collections inform each other ah, mm -hmm. and the professional knowledge and skills of the staff inform each other. So I've been as, uh, an archivist looking at a um, letter from the artist Ben Nicholson, um, who, who was married to Barbara Hepworth, another famous British artist, mm -hmm. saying, well, Barbara says she's sending your, you her sketch from the Venice Biennale that she'd, she'd shown at, at that event that year. And, uh, and across the table, my colleague, who was the art collections curator, was looking at that actual sketch of Barbara Hepworth. Wow. So you, you, th these things have narratives and relationships mm -hmm. between them that we, we don't um, tease apart in a, a natural way. And, and how, how long has the library pursued this kind of strategy? Because it seems like you know, that would have to be a conscious choice to yeah. and part of your acquisition process. And so um, it, it's been a gradual development. I remember I worked back here on a project in 2000, and yes, there was a special collections department mm -hmm. here. Um, uh, the the more recent uh, establishment of the Centre for Research Collections was in the mid two thousands. Well, that was a, that conscious when the library was refurbished at the mm -hmm. university. That was a conscious decision to have a, a dedicated centre that included not only special collections, but um, the museums, musical instruments, and art collections offering as well. Wow. So, when it, at what point in your life did you decide to become an archivist, or how, you know how did? I'm really sad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I, I, we, it's that moment when you're 14 and you get sent to the the careers fair at your school, mm. and uh, there's various people you can talk to, um, and I went and spoke. My my mum worked in libraries, um, so we went to say hello to her boss that was there, mm -hmm. and. Um, he, he was asking, so what, what are you interested in? I said, oh, I really love, I love uh, English, I love um, English literature, I love, I love history, I really love history, I love art. Um, and he said, well, would you be interested in going and spending the day with our archivist, which is just the, the local authority archivist? Yeah. Um, 
uh, in half term when you're not at school. And I was like, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so I, I went along at 14 to see um, Dave, the archivist in the local area. And I remember he, he, being a busy man, he left me with a box, uh, um, a you know, the black legal boxes of 19th century correspondence. Mm-hmm. I had no skills in paleography at the time, but had a whale of a time trying to decipher and sort this box out. Did my best. It probably wasn't very good because <laughs> no training, but um, loved doing that. And then in the afternoon, he took me out to... Camelide Shipyard, a shipbuilding uh, company that's based on the whale where I grew up. And we, we were working with a volunteer to look at where there were shipbuilding plans, where there were records of this company. So this is in Liverpool? This is, right? this is uh, yeah, uh, well, it's o- opposite Liverpool um, on the whale. And I got to um, sort of, it was in a, a you know, you, you're hunting out records and it was in a, a you know, a, a working store, so it's a bit grimy and stuff, but we were finding these amazing plans and that just clicked and mm-hmm. I just thought I love doing this and talking to the people I was working with what what they were trying to do about making this stuff accessible um, and so from there on in just got experience in various means and ways in libraries and archives and went on to do the, the master's course after my degree. Wow. 14, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, I mean, but it's great at an early age, you know. Yeah. That you kind of knew exactly what you wanted to do. Most people, I don't think, necessarily just, do that. It did just click. And I did investigate looking at other things, like, do, should I go into teaching? Mm-hmm. I thought, maybe I don't have the patience. <laughs> um, <laughs> or should I go into, you know, look at other heritage um, mm-hmm. uh, occupations? But this always, always just drawn back to archives. And how long have you been here at, at university? So I've been here since 2012. Okay. Um, worked on various um, collections, from College of Art collections, which I mentioned earlier, um, to the wider collections, things like medieval manuscripts, um, business re- records mm-hmm. as well. So in your role here, you help organize a lot of exhibitions or help, uh, or at least help facilitate exhibitions abroad by loaning out materials? Or... Um, uh, we can, uh, not just myself, across the team, we, we, we have loaned material out to uh, institutions where the conditions that we expect mm-hmm. are, are met. And we do, that. part of the reason for that is we do have unbelievably uh, brilliant world-class collections. Mm. Um, I, and, and sometimes the, the uh, sometimes little-known collections that have that big impact once they're, they're out there. Um, so what, what's a good example of, of one of those collections? The Lane collection, for example, um, that was a collection that was um, the item that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about is from. And he was a 19th century, um, he worked with his father in, in the book trade, but he went on to become quite a polymath. He was a librarian to the Signet Library. He um, was a historian, a writer, but for us, he was a collector. Mm. So we have described as a bit of a a glorified skip jumper because he would hoover up things that were being um, disposed of sometimes in the 19th century Mm -hmm. where people were selling things off, there were sales of things um, to amass this massive collection. He he also... um, 
was sanitized by people because of his his knowledge. He was known. He knew lots right. and lots of people. He was known as this um, brain, I would say, that people could could uh, inquire about Scottish history. But mm. it was wider than that, and it's quite a difficult collection to communicate because it's so vast in its reach, mm. both geographically, mm -hmm. um, but chronologically as well, and in subject matter. So it showed his interests were just broad. So there are real strengths and things. There are, are items that were um, from the French Revolution. There mm. are letters from Hans Christian. There's a note from Hans Christian Andersen. There are items from kings and queens. There's um, material from, obviously, Robert Burns and mm -hmm. Sir Walter Scott. Um, there are household accounts. There are things on theatres in Edinburgh. There are church records. There's a copy of John Knox's History of the Reformation, wow. which we think would have been done by scribes contemporary to him, and potentially even he might have had sight of it, and whether any of the annotations are him or, or not, we don't know. That's amazing. Um, there's music in there. Uh, there's humour in there. Um, there's fire and brimstone sermons <laughs> in there. So the whole of life. Uh -huh. um, uh, so it is a difficult... Um, so Lady Grange's kidnapping documents about that, which is a, Jeez, a what, Jacobite affair. What did so he What did he I know. That, <laughs> so when people... We try and describe this collection as a jewel in the crown of the university's mm -hmm. collections. It's really hard to communicate because of the breadth of it. Um, but and he had a George Washington letter. Yes, which we have out. Which we have out right yeah. before us. Um, so uh, some of the items he had, he will have acquired. Um, we don't know how he acquired mm -hmm. some of them, so, but there's potentially he acquired them through his connections at the university. And there are university of both Edinburgh and Glasgow um, people in this collection. And this one particular letter um, is to Dr. F Ferguson, that's Adam Ferguson, mm -hmm. who was one of our uh, professors here. And Adam Ferguson was part of the um, Carlisle campaign, the peace campaign in 1778, and received this letter from George Washington in that capacity. <laughs> and it's, yeah, I think it's dated June the 9th, 1778. Yeah. Um, looks like it's in the, the hand, at least the text is in the hand of, of Washington's aide-de-camp, Richard Hanson Harrison, but of course there's the, the GW signature right there. It's clearly Absolutely. So what is this, so Adam Ferguson, you know, major figure of the Scottish Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, you know, hugely influential in shaping knowledge about civil society and, and things yeah. of that nature. But he's part of this peace commission, right, to essentially Absolutely. try to try to convince the colonies to come back into the fold. Yeah. Two years after independence. Um, and and what, what's going on in this letter? So, um... At the time, I think the uh, British forces were retreating. And so um, he's writing to ask for passage. Uh, well, Ferguson wrote to ask for um, uh, passage and permission to, to go and try and convince people. And what it says, um, the letter which accompanies this will inform Sir Henry Clinton that I cannot grant the passport requested by um, 
his favour of the state without the previous instructions of Congress. Mm. That really struck me, and we displayed this letter a couple of years ago for a, a display for the um, National Archives Awareness Campaign um, that was looking at rights and politics and democracy, because essentially that one sentence is saying, and I'm doing this through a democratic process, mm -hmm. and I thought that was quite powerful. And it's, it, he's clearly subordinating himself to Congress. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't say much else um, on this occasion. It's this, I have thought proper to advise you of, to prevent you the inconvenience of proceeding should this find you on the way. What it, what's interesting, you know, as you rightly say, it's, you know, it, it, Washington is, is viewing this through the lens of a kind of democratic process. You know, he is the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, but... You know, he takes orders ultimately from the civilian. They they want to treat with, you know, the opposite field commander as opposed to giving legitimacy to this Congress that's declared itself uh, yeah. independent of Great Britain. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, we have a University of Edinburgh individual, mm -hmm. a key figure of the Enlightenment, involved so, in. So why? Do, I mean, what's the significance of that? Do you think? Um, you know, um, and what does it I mean for the university, too? Yeah, yeah. I, it's an interesting one, uh, I think, because you, uh, not being you know, an academic expert on these things, but um, it makes me think of the Enlightenment and the way people mm -hmm. were thought in that process as being uh, the intellectual, the rigor behind that, but thinkers and philosophers, I mean, he, he you know, dealt with philosophy. Mm -hmm. he did, he, you know, so they wanted someone who had that breadth of being able to uh, communicate and think and persuade and being of an enlightenment mind may be able to mm -hmm. do that. And to hopefully to appeal to enlightened minds on this yeah. or on the other side of the Atlantic as well. Absolutely. I forgot where I was for a second. I was yeah. like, <laughs> I was like, on this side of the Atlantic, wait a second, no, I'm, I'm in Scotland at the moment. Um, no. So, yeah, it's, it's, and he mentions uh, General Sir Henry Clinton. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it, it's, it's Ferguson's acting as an intermediary. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not being general to general on this particular, it's, it's this bit in the middle. Yeah, it's, it's a weird situation with, you know, in 1778, you know, there's, it's not necessarily a stalemate, but, no, you know, at that point, neither army has the upper hand. Um, you know, Clinton, or the Clinton and... British forces have a little bit more momentum, and certainly by the next year when they reconquer Georgia and then take Charleston in, in 1780, they, they've got a lot of momentum. But, you know, what's really fascinating, I think, is that, and I don't think, you know, a whole lot of, a whole lot of folks who read about the revolution realize that, you know, there was a moment where the British tried uh, to negotiate some kind of settlement, uh, you know, two but, years after yeah. independence, but then... Ultimately failed. Ultimately failed, and... Yeah. Uh, that yeah. there is there is the the fact that while you've got Ferguson doing this, there were um, people trying to bribe congressmen oh, at yeah. the same yeah. time. So that that it's not quite as flat a landscape. There's many yeah. kind of Some machinations and things going on. Multifaceted yeah. campaign to, to bring people back into the order. Yeah. Um, but you know, by this point, it, having stuck their neck out and declared independence. It would have been very difficult for them 
to go back, at least, you know, yeah. members of Congress and whatnot. I think we've spoken before, yeah, it, it, it's a point of no return, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. it's we're, we're here now. We're, we're really, yeah, yeah, really by, you know, of course, July 1776, once that come, once the yeah. declaration comes out. That's it. You know, it's, there, there's no going back. Either you win the war or you're, you're going to be hung by the neck until you're dead for treason. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they knew that. Yeah. Um, what, what also strikes me is the language of, of the letter. It's, you know, it's not get lost, it's not angry, it's very polite. The, the, the right. language of diplomacy mm -hmm. is being seen here. You know, it's saying, we can't grant you this. This is the process we go through. Um, I'm trying to get this to you to save you the inconvenience mm -hmm. um, of trying, basically. Right. But, it, but it's very strong and clear that that's it. Right. No, We're, it's a definite no. Thank you for coming, but but no, but, but no, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. It's it's you know clearly two 18th century gentlemen uh, who are among their respective elite, you know, treating with one another. Yeah, uh, and you know, and of course, always the closing line: "You're most humble." You know, what does he say in this one? You're most. I have the honor to mm -hmm. be, sir, your most um, obedient servant, George Washington. And. Sometimes it's I think it's easy to look at that as basically their form of sincerely comma you know signature yeah. but and that really was indicative of the fact that they 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 saw themselves as as you say treating with each other in a diplomatic manner and a kind of um, acknowledgement of their respective statuses yeah that and that's that's an interesting point there as well Jim because the you know the the, res the response is giving a status to this mm -hmm. response by the language that's used as well. It's it's not just a dashed off note, it's it's constructed carefully. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're, whatever the language that was used in the first place, they're reflecting back, you know, that language right. that shows the status of diplomacy, therefore they have legitimate status as, as Congress, as uh, a government. Right, exactly. And I should say now that uh, you've digitized this letter, it is available yeah. online, and so we can... It is, and you, we, we have it on a CCBY license, which means you can download it and make use of it with acknowledgement mm -hmm. of where it's from. Um, and we, we have that as a policy for things that we can do that with, within copyright legislation, so that, um, you know, as custodians, we're making the knowledge that's here at the University of Edinburgh mm -hmm in the city of enlightenment um, <laughs> available to the world. It's, very, it's a very enlightened position. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we'll certainly post a link to this on the webpage for the podcast. And, you know, even though it has been transcribed and it's, and it's a part of the, the Papers of George Washington Project you know, at the University of Virginia and appears, I can't remember which volume it appears in, but it's always a lot more fun to see the real thing. Absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, and I think when I was here last year, and you all had said, "Oh, we have a Washington letter." We're like, "What? You know, <laughs> what is it doing here? How did it get How here? How did it get here? It? Yeah. And so we, we, Mr. Lane, obviously just went went about collecting everything. So, we, but we don't quite know how he received this specific well, not letter. Not this spe specific one, but um, where he operated was very close to the university, um, and he knew many, many people at the university. His house um, was down in Portobello. Uh, it's not there any longer, but apparently when he passed away, it was it was creaking at the, the seams <laughs> in terms oh, of no. stuff. Um, but 
it, it doesn't surprise me that he has this letter. Mm -hmm. um, just the path of how it got into his hands. As with many of the things, you know, we know from some of them that they were bought at sale, mm -hmm. but others of them, it's not quite so clear. And I can't remember if there's anything. I guess I should ask, may I touch the letter? Of course, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anything? It's just... Uh -huh. and it's, oh, it's been indexed, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. But there's a little scribble at the bottom. I'm not quite sure. So it's some of the marks on it, yeah. I, th I think this is, I mean, this is just indexed right. correspondence. Would have been probably done either contemporaneously or, or like, yeah. Yeah. Very neat. So you also have brought out very kindly for us a book. Yeah. So I was thinking, what else do we have? We have a number of um, items, uh, published works um, that were contemporary or just after uh, Washington passed away. So this is a first edition of Washington's Political uh, Legacies, which was published in New York in 1800 um, and is one of the volumes that came into the university library um, probably fairly early on. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the collecting of the university library, it's always been um, pretty on the ball in terms of contemporary, in terms of uh, lit contemporary literature, but also histories and, and that. Um, and um, we also have the part of Adam Smith's library. So you get, you wow. see an enlightenment <laughs> library right there. The other part is at the University of Tokyo. The two parts went through different directions, um, directions for in the family. Oh, so I different see. branches of the oh. family got aspects of it, but um, that's uh, fully catalogued and people come and request items out. Um, and it's, it's a fabulous uh, collection. Um, so that's while that's Adam Smith amazing. was doing that, this was being published and it was... Well, what's ama amazing about this book is, I mean, yeah, as you rightly say, it's published 1800, so a year after Washington dies. Yeah. But it's published in New York. Yeah. And, you know, late 18th, early 19th century, there are not a, a whole lot of American presses cranking out books no. at that point. But I, mean, I, I, you, I think this is fairly widely available. Hmm. I mean, it's, it is a unique item in, in many respects, but there are copies of this in quite a few libraries in the States and here in the in UK. But it has that over site. So we, we were talking about what the letter actually means, and then we've got the book on his, his legacy. And so we're kind of exploring <laughs> some of that with yeah. talking about the letter. But um, his biographical sketch, life and character, his will. Um, and that, yeah, this, this came in in the 19th century here, early 19th century. So. Okay. Yeah, it's in pretty good condition as well. Oh, and it's got, um, I mean, I've, I've actually never seen this book before, but it's got in the contents, um, let's see, uh, his commission from Congress to command the American army, uh, orders on the secession of hostilities, circular letter to the governors of the several states to, at the close of the Revolutionary War, um, addressed well, to Congress, yeah. acknowledging his imminent service. It's quite a, it's quite a large... Uh, so really this is, it's got a biographical sketch, but really it's a compilation of, of some of yeah. his writings. What I found most interesting as well at the very, very back are the lists of subscribers. Oh, the subscribers. 
Um, oh, that's always a have, fun thing to find. Yeah, who will have made this happen? So um, could you know go through the list and identify um, you know American subscribers who um, were names at the time or had impact on American history mm. following Washington. That's really cool. Um, it, and I love seeing the subscribers' names in, in a lot of the books. That you know, the first edition of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England in 1772. There's a similar list, and you yeah. can see like every major lawyer who's worth his salt in that period is buying that book. And so, you know, it would be a really fun project to dig through this list of people and just see, you know, who's who's purchasing. I'm just starting to see very quickly if I recognize anybody. Um, I've got. That's quite a substantial list, yeah. I mean, and in a lot of ways not unsurprising, given you know it comes out almost immediately after. So in a lot of ways, this this might actually function as as one of the earliest compilations of of GW's um, writings. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, the, the, it does have you know it has a biography, but it does have um, great transcriptions of letters and um, and. Uh, various other things so things letters like uh, to the gentleman of the house um, of representatives mm. you, know, you know when he passed away and um, things that John Adams had sent so it I, it's quite nice it's not just for example Washington's writings mm-hmm. but it, in terms of legacy it's the people around him and what they were saying as well well and getting back to the earlier conversation about the letter and you spoke about that being a indicative or emblematic of a democratic process and just looking through the table of contents and the kinds of uh, 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 material that's contained within kind of speaks to that same notion I think yeah um, you know deference to Congress you know that you know getting a commission from Congress is you know you're, you're commissioned by the representatives of the people um, and you know of course very famously Washington gives up power at yeah. the very end of the war you know shocks people um, and then does it again at the end of his presidency. There's this apocryphal story where George III hears this and he says, you know, if Washington has voluntarily given up power, he's surely the greatest man who's ever lived. It's not really clear if, if the king said that, but, yeah. um, you know, it makes for a good story. But it, it's, <laughs> but it, it kind of is fitting with, with this idea of, of, as you say, you know, a democratic process. But also, you know, the title is, you know, very striking, Political Legacies. It's almost as yeah. if this is a... Um, and then who, it's, it's still the consolidation of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's quite a statement as a book. Um, so. And who's there's a, as a someone has inscribed their name there? Do we know who that? Yeah, I was looking at this the other day, and I think it's a William, but the the ink has bled mm-hmm. so much that it's very difficult to actually decipher. Um, but it, it potentially is a William, um, and then we would have to do some more work on that, I would say, because it's so... so it looks like it's, yeah, the ink bled. Yeah, Y-M-E at the end, uh, so we can, we can work on that. Well, we, that's the next research project, yeah. <laughs> figuring out who that is. Um, that's part of the fun of it, deciphering oh, yeah. handwriting. I mean, sometimes you want to bang your head against the wall, but, <laughs> let's, but you, then you get that wonderful moment when you figure it out and like it's like a magic eye puzzle you stare at oh, it oh i and could never do those yeah things. stare at it and stare at it and you go no i'm not guessing it. it and is. then suddenly it unravels before your mm-hmm, eyes mm-hmm. so yeah 
Um, I'm just look, looking at the... Uh, so that's the original body, too, it, it appears. So. Yes, it is. I, I, I did a bit of checking on, mm -hmm. online and to see if I could find any other images of original books, original bindings that were out there. And yes, that's the original wow. bound binding as well. And I know you have some other things in your annex. On, on, I guess it's an off-storage site. Yeah, facility. yeah, we uh, yeah, th th we have a couple of other contemporary volumes to, to this on uh, Washington's life. So the John Marshall yes. biography, right? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean that's really cool because that you know that's the first major biography, and we've got some back in Mount Vernon, the first edition. But you know here this it's almost this is almost kind of like the uh, the progenitor or the I guess the great 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 grandfather of the modern editorial yeah. editions of of the papers projects, um, but it's really cool. Yeah, it's the, the sort of analog form of mm -hmm. bringing all those things together. So it, it, do we, how, how would this have been acquired by the university? Would it, it probably have been a gift or purchased at a sale or? So many um, of the items that came into the university from the 16th century onwards, there was a practice of when students left and they, they did, did well in their careers, they would send a book back to the university as a gift. Oh. So some of our collection is student-built. That's neat. And it still is today. The students have input into how we build uh, collections. Um, I, I, some of them were purchased. So, you know, um, other forms of gift can be through the academic mm -hmm. uh, community or um, where people are studying particular things or have an interest and then pass that on to um, we would be able to um, I haven't done so but we would be able to look at uh, the reference number to give us an indication of where mm. that would fit chronologically but also if we can uh, it would take some time because of the way the records are structured mm -hmm. but you could see if it does feature at all in our um, accessions books that we have for the 19th century wow and how uh, is there a great deal of material here for people who are interested in studying the American Revolution or you know the, the late years of Britain's North American Empire? Um, there are pockets of material like you've seen the letter mm -hmm. and that, and there, there is more um, correspondence in um, the Lane collection. Um, I would say that the, there's a probably a bigger amount of material for the governance of Florida, and earlier oh. than that. So we have material on um, period from the sort of 17th century through the 18th mm -hmm. century and uh, some of the difficulties surrounding that um, area. And do you have any, so you have records from James Grant of Ballandock or speaking of East Florida? Probably. I know, I believe his... Let me just check. Yeah. <laughs> Wand at the ready. Yeah. Uh, certainly because he's, uh, I believe the original papers are still at the Ballandock Castle, but... Um, he was a frequent and prolific writer when he was governor of East Florida. So, so we have bundles of the connected with the family of Johnston of Westerhall, um, oh, governor okay. Johnston of Florida. West Florida. So we're talking eighteen. It says seventeen sixteen, but then there's a question mark about it being seventeen sixty seven actually. But that would make more sense. Yes. Yeah. I think that. They got yeah. the date wrong originally in the printed version, and it's been corrected. Um, and then the second. Well, that's pretty interesting. The second one West is paper of forty-eight folio pages, 
orders and instructions to George Johnson Esquire, governor of West Florida, with the signature of King George III, 1763, and also two papers of oaths administered to officers of the colony. So these are the commissions, yeah. the governor and the, and the colony's administrators, yeah. Yeah. right when they take possession of that from the Spanish. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I mean, how he got, how Lane got, got these, I don't know. You know. Um, <laughs> and West, West, West Florida was kind of a disaster. I mean, that was like the one assignment you didn't want. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's more. There's uh, letters to George Johnson about naval dispatches um, when he was Commodore in the 1780s. So wow. Later, uh, family papers as well, so. And you know that's great to know because there are there are some hist good histories of East and West Florida, but you know really when we talk about you know the period we call the Imperial Crisis or the post Seven Years War period, yeah, Florida kind of gets left out, uh, unfortunately. But there is just a lot of dynamic things happening down there. You know, there's a there's that they're probably quite a, an interesting example of. You, where I've said before, we have world-class, amazing mm -hmm. collections, and how many people will know that we have these? Right. So well, now they will. Now they will, and they can come and <laughs> exactly. use them. Exactly. Yeah. And they can use the reading room and look out on Arthur's seat and, Absolutely. The, and the borders. And ask for these items out of the Lane collection section two, and it's uh, around seventy-six and seventy. Um, yeah. Around 73 and 76. Wow. So they could just order them out and then work their way through them. Well, I, and I can tell, I know from experience, it's a very pleasant place to do research. So. Well, yeah. I know it can be daunting going to an archive and doing, you know, a strange mm -hmm. archive and then you do the research. Um, and some researchers are very used to that, but if you're new to it, it can be quite daunting. But it's a very friendly team here. It is. Make you very welcome. I absolutely agree. Well, do you have any you know, big, exciting events coming up that uh, you can reveal to the world now? Or, <laughs> or well, we we have a, we do a number of exciting projects that are funded by the Wellcome Trust, and one of those we have next Thursday an opening exhibition on um, uh, movement and physical education in Scotland from. 1890 to 1990 and it in particular focus on women so going from oh, the 18th century we've been talking about right the way through into the 20th century and looking at um, movement and aesthetic and health and welfare um, so that that's exciting we're looking forward to opening that and we I mean we've had things that that's the breadth of our collections mm -hmm. you can go from one century to another from one format to another and we'll be having um, digital versions of our films that we have for that oh, as part great. of it as well. Wow. Can't well, get film from the 18th century, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> we haven't really gotten that time machine no. thing figured out yet, but one of these days. Well, if anyone is in Edinburgh in the near future, you've got a fine exhibition to come to and then pop on up and maybe see a George Washington letter as well. Absolutely. Well, Rachel, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Jim Ambusky. Our theme music is entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. And if you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast. Hasty back! <laughs>